You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season eight, episode nine, Armature and Astonishment with sculptor Sarah Hempel Irani. Sarah Hempel Irani has been sculpting expressive figures in clay and stone for nearly 20 years. Originally from Michigan, she moved to Maryland to apprentice with J. Hall Carpenter, former artist-in-residence at the Washington National Cathedral. Sarah has contributed sculptures to national shows and received several notable awards, including the Maryland Arts Council Individual Artist Award in 2009. Currently, Sarah is sculpting a seven and a half foot statue of renowned fashion designer Claire McArdle to be cast in bronze and installed in McArdle's hometown of Frederick, Maryland. In this episode, I talk with Sarah about her creative process as a sculptor, how technique and spontaneity work together, and how practices such as centering prayer leads to unexpected astonishment in her art making. I'm excited as well to feature in this episode song interludes from my music group Songs of Water. We just released a three-song EP of Christmas-themed songs titled Bright Mystery. In a bit of serendipity, or perhaps providence, I discovered the themes of these songs tied in perfectly to the themes of this episode. You can find links to hear the full versions of the music in the show notes. And as a reminder, Virtual and a limited number of live tickets are available to the Breath in the Clay 2021, taking place March 19 through 21 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You can find this link in the show notes as well, and also on our official website at makersandmystics.com. This is my interview with sculptor Sarah Hempel Irani. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's truly an honor to have you here in my space. Absolutely. And so that the listeners know, we are in Frederick, Maryland, in your personal studio. I'm looking around at some of the most gorgeous sculptures ever. And (laughs) this is amazing just to be able to talk with you in your space that you inhabit and just looking around at at all the incredible work that you're doing. I can't wait to dive into some of this. Thank you so much. Yeah. So when did you first discover that sculpting was going to be a life pursuit for you? Well, when I went to college, I went to a liberal arts college and we had to, you know, take all the classes, the core curriculum. And then we could check one elective. And I just said, art, I don't know. Most of the kids who did that went into drawing 101 and they put me in sculpture. So I think possibly there was some providence at work, um, but it was a portrait sculpting class uh, when I had never done before. And I had been accustomed to being very good at art. And I found something that was very, very difficult. I spent a lot of time crying in the studio because it was so difficult. I spent a lot of time, you know, redoing the nose, uh, doing the left eye again, because I'm right-handed. So like getting my hand around to do the left eye is still difficult. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I had to conquer this thing. So I would, I was in the studio all the time, whether or not it was class. And um, finally I cast the sculpture that I made and I put it in the regional college art exhibit and I got best of show. 
And then a collector bought it. And I thought, well, I guess this is what I do now. <laughs> and I was a freshman, you know, at wow. the, the time. So I actually only took maybe four or five sculpture classes, but I spent all my time in the studio. In the college I went to, the, the art building closed at like 11 p.m. And I'm a total night owl. So I worked in the costume department for the theater. So I had a key to the costume room. So what I would do is I would go downstairs to the costume room and I would lock the door and I would turn the light off and wait for the, I could hear the custodial staff buffing the floors. And when it stopped, I would come out and I would sneak and I would be in the studio all night long. Amazing. And it was like, you know, all the kids in college, you know, you imagine are like out partying and such, but all I wanted to do was be in the studio. Wow. I had this experience of calling that was very profound and mystical. My junior year, the summer between my junior year and senior year, I went to Norway to visit a friend who had been an exchange student when I was in high school at my house. And so I went there by myself and spent time with her and then flew home alone. And on the plane, you know, I had <laughs> nine hours to think about the places I'd been, the people I'd been with, and what's going to happen now. You know, I'm a senior, I'm going to be a senior in college, and what does that mean? You know, what? that's sort of the crisis that, that I think everybody has that their junior year. So I, I spent much of the plane crying, and I was asking God, what do you want me to do? What's, what's going to happen now? How is my path going to unfold? And rather than, you know, I was kind of hoping for this mystical experience right here, you know, and uh, now, Sarah, here's your path. You know, it wasn't anything like that. But what I had was an image. And I had a little piece of paper and I, I opened it up and I drew this image. And then, I don't, it wasn't a voice. It was just, I knew what to write. And it, it said, the king's handmaiden. Okay. So I took this little drawing and I spent some more time kind of developing the idea in more drawings. And now that I look back, it was so obvious what it was, but at the time I didn't know. So I made a sculpture and it was a larger than life size sculpture, um, kind of cut up at the waist. It was like the waist up and it was a woman. She was kind of pulling a veil and she was twisting away. So her body was facing one direction and her the upper half of her was, was twisting away and then her eyes were sort of looking up and it made like a spiral image. And after I'd made it and I spent all semester, you know, and my sculpture professor helped me build the armature and get the clay and I had models and costumes and the whole sculptor's experience. One of the art professors came in and said, oh my, Sarah, what have you done? You've made an Annunciation. And I said, a what? And then not a what? <laughs> and, and he was like an Annunciation. And he handed me, you know, Jansen's History of Art. And I opened the medieval and Renaissance section. And there was painting after painting after painting of the story of when Gabriel comes to Mary and mm -hmm. says, you know, um, blessed are you among women. You know, this story um, that tells us the moment of incarnation. So I realized this was sort of my Annunciation, you know, that God was giving me my path. And not that my life is all about sculpture, um, but this is my vocation, and it's much more than my job, or you know, even though I do it as a job. Um, it's much bigger than that. There's a, a deep sense of calling to this thing. Um, and I try to quit periodically, because it's really hard. It's really hard. It's physically hard. Um, there's a lot of hard things about it. So I said, well, I've made an enunciation. And this is what I do now. 
So you created an enunciation without knowing that that's what you were doing. Right. I didn't know enough about art history to know that that's what I was making. And yet I must have seen enough of those images or there's something universal about that image. Because the image of the Annunciation, um, Mary is, her body is turned away from the angel and she twists towards the angel. And there's actually many different types of Annunciations. Uh, and I'm doing research and I'm doing a project that sort of develops the different types. Um, but initially the angel disturbs her and she's astonished. And he tells her not to be afraid. And so this is what I have written over the door of my studio. It says, Noli Timera, which means do not be afraid. And this is when I'm very afraid. I repeat to myself, do not be afraid, for the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid, afraid to believe, don't be afraid. Would you say then that your creative process is also a place of prayer? It's so tangled up that it's difficult to separate. On one hand, I've had a lot of experience where the art teaches me. Sometimes the art knows what it wants. Mm. And when I'm struggling, I remember I was working on a very large St. Joseph and I was walking past it and I could just see the eyes following me and I turned and I screamed at it. And I said, what do you want to be? Because mm. I was struggling. So yes, in some ways um, it's a prayer, but I'm not, I don't want to over-spiritualize it either. There, there are steps one takes, you know, and first we build the armature and, mm -hmm. and these are the things that make a good composition. And, you know, especially when I have commissioned clients, I have to work on their themes and sometimes I get tangled up in my own intellect and try to solve the problems that way. But it's when I sort of release into it that it comes, you know, and it, it's a collaborative effort, mm -hmm. shall I say, with my techniques and knowledge. And then I have to kind of coax it out. You know, for example, the project that I'm working on right now is a seven and a half foot bronze monument to fashion designer Claire McCardle for the city of Frederick. And I did an 18 inch model. I did several different times. And each time it was technically fine. It was good. The ideas were good, but it wasn't quite right. And so I kept searching for what's right in it. And I don't have a, a method. I don't say a incantation or, right, or anything sure, like that, right. you know, but I have to sort of coax it out. What is it that you want? What is it that you want to be? Mm -hmm. How is this going to unfold? So there's definitely a spiritual element to it. And because sculpture is so beholden to gravity and to physics, uh, it has to be planned out in a certain way. And so this sort of spontaneous art doesn't happen very much for me, but things kind of unfurl if that makes sense. And there have been times when I've had to lob off heads and move things and, you know, which is very difficult the larger it gets because there's steel in there, mm. you know? <laughs> yes. You used the word armature a yes. couple of times. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners that may not be familiar with that term, help us understand what the armature is. So the armature is an aluminum or steel structure that goes underneath the clay that holds the clay. So the kind of clay that I use is an oil-based clay. It has a lot of wax in it. So when it gets hard, it's 
it's or when it gets cold it's hard and when it's warm it gets soft like a candle but more clay like so if i don't have a structure underneath the clay will collapse upon itself mm -hmm. so the armature i usually think of it as a skeleton but it supports the clay but it's not the art itself you know it's on the inside that gives it but it gives it shape and form and strength so it's usually made from aluminum, which is nice and flexible. Um, but for very large sculptures, we have to use steel that's welded and then it's covered in foam and then the clay mm -hmm. can go on. And the clay gets all the finesse. Like that's the fun part in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I love this concept of the armature, looking at it through the lens of a spiritual practice. And I think it was John O'Donohue, he said, the invisible hungers to become visible. And even when you were talking about the Annunciation and, and how, you know, your process of, of taking a concept or an idea and then bringing it to literal clay, to form and structure, it's very much reflective of word becoming flesh, <laughs> of, yes. of the invisible becoming visible. And when I think of the armature holding together the structure, I love what you said that the clay would actually collapse on itself if you did not have the armature. Yeah. And so I think of the armature as whether it's um, habits, belief system, spiritual practices, it's that invisible part that holds the outside together. I don't know, how does that idea sit with you? I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that, though I tend to think in terms of scaffold, but I think the armature works better for me as I think about it as metaphor, that without it, the clay is not strong enough to hold up unless the sculpture is very small. Um, the clay is what gives, is the part that we see, is the part that's beautiful, mm -hmm. is the part that holds meaning for the viewer. But the armature is the thing that gives it strength and structure and form. But that's an interesting idea to think about that in terms of what is our armature as we move through the world, as we, what holds us up and gives us strength and form? Is it our practices? Is it our habits? Is it our belief system? Is it the spirit? It's this sort of invisible, but it's, I mean, if you took that clay off, it's not invisible. Yeah. You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a metal structure underneath there. But that's a beautiful idea. Well, I know just from talking with you earlier, that the concept of centering prayer has been part of your journey. I'd love to know more about how centering prayer, well, first of all, maybe you can tell us what centering prayer is from your perspective and how that informs you as an artist and how that maybe has even served as a bit of an armature for you in your path. Yes, yeah, centering prayer is somewhat new to me, even though it's very old to the world, it's sort of, I like to say the, the old becomes new. So it sounds a little, um, you know, new spiritualist, um, but it, it comes from the desert fathers and many different spiritual traditions do this. And the way I learned to do it is incredibly simple. It's a way of praying where you just sit with the divine. You're not asking for anything. You're not saying a liturgy which are all good and valid forms of prayer. And this is you know, how Jesus asks us to pray. However, in centering prayer, it helps us to be still 
and to be with God and just to be, which is very difficult to do, especially in a very busy world where things are pinging and everything has our attention. And, uh, you know, my mind, like most people, is very busy. It's difficult to be still. So I came upon centering prayer during an especially difficult time in my life. Um, in 2017, I was diagnosed with both uterine and ovarian cancer mm. just before my 40th and very unexpected. Even my doctor was surprised. And during that time, well, first of all, it was right as I thought my sculpture career is really going to take off. I'm really going to become a great sculptor. And it, it knocked me down pretty hard. You know, I went through surgery, I went through chemotherapy, radiation. And during that time, I had a lot of time to lay around on the couch. Uh, I was in treatment for um, for six months intensely, but it was it went from like April to December, really. So so much of the year, my mother came to stay with us, and to look after our daughter. And it was challenging and beautiful and healing to spend time with her and to see her relationship blossom with my daughter. And it was a time when all the platitudes, the religious platitudes fell on their face. Everything happens for a reason. God didn't give me cancer. Oh, it made me so mad when people said that. Or, or um, God is in control. Oh, God is making me go through chemo. Nice job, God. You know, I was pretty <laughs> cynical and angry. Yeah, sure. You know? And um, my daughter we adopted when she was a toddler. And there were many nights where I begged God, don't make this kid an orphan again. You can't do that to her. Is God capricious and cruel? You know, nothing worked for me. Nothing was comforting. And yet, I remember a particular day of just feeling terrible and laying in my bed, and I just felt God. I just felt the presence. Do not be afraid, for the Lord is with you. And that's all at that moment I understood. Emmanuel, God is with us. That's all that made sense to me. Like all the theology I have studied and have read and have been taught, and I have a brain full of theology, and it fell flat at a time of true crisis. And the only thing I had, do not be afraid, for the Lord is with you. And I got through that cancer experience, and then at the end the doctors are like, have a nice life, we'll see you in three months. And I had spent the past year going to the doctor several days a week. And it was terrifying to just be released into the world and have to figure out how to live as a normal person after that experience. And my mom went home. And so I, I went to a retreat center in, near Baltimore, and they offer spiritual direction. And I met Sister Bernie, who is a sister of the Bon Secours, and um, who is full of wisdom. But that sort of wisdom that's like, like you find in a child who says... Nothing complicated, you know. So she taught me this prayer. And she said, all you have to do is sit comfortably and breathe. Inhale, exhale. And when you're sort of breathing comfortably, normally, then you kind of slow down the breath. And she said the idea here is to now breathe in that which you want to breathe in, whether it's the name of God, whether it's the name of Jesus, whether it's... Um, an attribute 
of God or the Holy Spirit, you know, peace, joy, love. And then on your exhale, you breathe out, you let go of your fear, of your anxiety, of those things that are holding you back that are not of God. And so it's just breathing with God. And so I sat there with her. I didn't have a word. I didn't know about this yet. This is the first time. So I sat there with her breathing in a little room with Sister Bernie with a fake candle in the middle there. I started to feel still, peaceful, and we were there together. And then I felt, and it wasn't audible, but I, it was clear the word that I was breathing in was calling. And the spirit was reminding me that I have a calling. And again, it's not about sculpture. You know, this is my gift. This is the work that I'm doing. This isn't all of me, you know. But then I breathed out and the word that came was ambition. And it felt confusing, but freeing that I could just let go of this clamoring to be a great artist, that great artist that 13-year-old Sarah set out to be, that 20-year-old artist that I moved to Washington, D.C. to be. And I just felt the peace of God with me. So when I get into these places where I'm clamoring or I find myself struggling to get ahead or to, to be that great artist, I kind of go back to that place and I, I try to incorporate it into a regular practice. And, and I use different words, but I'm always reminded of that kind of first encounter. And one shift I really noticed that made a profound difference in my life is when I met a new person, especially if that person were wealthy, I thought, oh, a potential new client. <laughs> and that stopped. I started seeing people as the image of God, as collaborators, as friends, as fellow humans on this journey and not as potential clients. And nothing changed really outside but it was just the way that I was with people shifted and it shifted for me. And miraculously, shortly after learning this prayer and, you know, it takes a really long time to heal from chemotherapy. You know, you're done, but you still have to literally grow back your blood and get your, and I laid on the couch for a year. So, you know, having no muscle tone and all that. So months and months are going by and I'm trying to get my life back together. And the Frederick Art Club decided to erect a monument to Claire McArdle. And my realtor was at the meeting and she said, well, we have to ask Sarah. She's a woman, she's a sculptor. She lives right here in Frederick and she's gonna do a really good job. So they invited me to do this. That was my, dream that I had thought, if I can get back into sculpture, if I can get strong enough, I want to do a monument to women and to people who aren't represented. You know, if you go to Washington, D.C., there's not very many women or people of color or indigenous people or people who aren't on horses or war <laughs> heroes, you know. But here it just came to me. I didn't have to clamor for it. I didn't have to apply even. And Anytime I think, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do after this, like Claire will be installed next year and, and oh, I start to have anxiety and then I have to go back to that practice, that prayer practice to ground myself in this isn't just my job and I can't work like a person who's just working a job. And I have a feeling that most artists 
can really identify with with that sense that it's it's more than a job. You know, it's a vocation, which means, you know, comes from vocara to call. So we have many vocations, but um, this is definitely a big one for me. Mm. I love hearing the process of sitting with the mystery in this because there's there's so much that in that story that is uncertain. Yeah. And there's so much in life. I mean, the reality that we're all going to die is true. That's our reality. And we don't want to think about it and we don't like to think about it. And when you're faced with a disease or an accident, you have to sort of sit with that. And it's hard to think about it when you're still young and vibrant. And uh, But it's that's the reality. And our faith is one that at the center of it, God dies. <laughs> like that's the center of the faith, right? He suffers and he dies. It's not all do the right things and everything will be okay, which is, I think, what a lot of us end up believing. You were saying earlier how the process of creating your sculptures, on one hand, it doesn't leave a lot of room for spontaneity. It's very thought out. But at the same time, even when you said to your own work, what do you want to be? There's this collaboration with the material and there's also room for surprise, I'm sure, in your work. I'd love to know in your creative process how you find surprise even in the midst of, of well thought out procedures. I like to think about sculpture or art in general as there's technique and anybody can learn to a certain point. And then there's this gulf of magic that I don't even understand. So when I approach a sculpture, I usually will have an idea. And sometimes it doesn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here's a concrete example. I was working on a sculpture of a girl sitting on an egg as though it were a chair. I'm very interested in eggs as a shape, as you know, intellectually. And she was very stiff because I also like these sort of archaic Greek sculptures and they're very rigid and they're very stiff. And uh, anyhow, so I was working on that and I had hired a model. And after the model had gone, um, I was listening to the radio. And I don't usually listen to the radio. I usually listen to classical music in the studio. And there had been a shooting at Virginia Tech. And I imagined the police officers having to call the moms and saying, your child has been killed. And it brought me to this scripture in Jeremiah and then also again in Matthew where it says, Rachel is weeping for her children. and She cannot be comforted because they are no more. And to me in that very brief line, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but a very brief line captures a woman's grief. And I took that egg out and I changed that sculpture dramatically and I made Rachel weeping for her child. And it was not stiff like a Greek archaic form. It had to be made. I just made it and it wasn't humanly possible to sit like that. Now, I had to really bend the armature, and um, but this was a half-life-size sculpture. So there was a lot of physical wrestling with the sculpture and sitting with that difficult story 
And then unfolded that a friend experienced a miscarriage and called me. And another friend lost a child shortly after birth, and I was getting ready to adopt a child who had lost her mother. And this grief, though Rachel isn't an individual, you know, she is all of it. And so it was like this tiny two-line scripture all of a sudden felt so real and so big and so present in the world. So I didn't plan on, on making that work. And it surprised me. And I think it surprised other people too, because it was very expressive and, and wrought and difficult mm -hmm. and beautiful at the same time. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm doing a large commission project, like the story with St. Joseph, I had made his hair all curly because I wanted it to be like this Italian Renaissance St. Joseph. And I put a hammer in his hand because he's a carpenter. And the arts committee said, no, 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 give him an angle square. I'm like, oh, are you serious? Like, are you nitpicking? And they're like, we don't like his hair at all. And I'm like, but this Italian curly hair. And I was so mad. And I took a rubber mallet and I climbed up and it was it's a big sculpture. I climbed up and I took that mallet and I whapped that hair and I whapped that hair. And I was like, what do they know about art? And I was like, oh, wait, wait a second. This hair is getting way better. <laughs> and the hair was sort of blowing a little bit because we don't see the spirit. We don't see the wind, but we see it by his hair blowing. And all of a sudden, St. Joseph, we felt him in the presence with this spirit who was coming to him. And it's surprised me. It surprised me that just moving the hair like that changed the work. I think that's beautiful because you can have all the right technique, like you're saying, but then there's, there's this element of magic. There's this intuition. It's, there's a sensitivity of the creative process that if we rush that, we might miss what the work wants to become, or we might miss that surprise, that element of surprise that you're talking about, where you can have the whole thing planned out and yet at the end of it, you're still just as astonished as the viewer. And that's what I think causes us as creatives, whether we're songwriters or poets or choreographers, sculptors, whatever, I think that's one of the things that keeps us coming back to the studio again and again, is there's this element of astonishment or there's this element of surprise that you could do the same thing over and over and over, and it will be different every time. It has its own character. I've talked about fiction writers who complain that their characters won't do what they want them to do. Dorothy Sayers talked about that in, in her book, The Mind of the Maker. And I love that. And, and I think that technique, in my view, and you can speak into this, but I think that technique is important because it gives a language to the spirit. It gives a language to the intuitive. And I think that's the way that I see those things working together is that it's important for us to learn the techniques. It's important for us to learn the language of our craft so that we can break the rules. So absolutely, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> <Yes>. know? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like you can't write a song if, if you don't know the scales. Right. You know, and, and with visual arts, um, the rules tend to be a little looser. But there's still, even when I when I go to the church where, St. Joseph and the Virgin Mary are there. I am still, I did that, really. But I, I, I think art is so collaborative with the spirit, you know, that yes, I'm doing it, but there's something beyond what I even know how to do. Because sometimes I even look at, at this and I'm like, I can't believe people trusted me to, to do this because I don't know what I'm doing. And sometimes I don't. 
and I don't know if any of us do completely, you know, with art, there's, there's an element of surprise. It does keep us coming back. It, what is it going to be? What is, what is it going to teach me? What is it going to say? And I like that you've brought up the idea of, of not rushing it because we live in a culture that is on a deadline. People turn things around really fast. Everything's on Instagram. If you aren't posting right now, and the work that I do takes so long. It is painfully slow. Mm-hmm. You have to really step through each step. I love trusting the process. We have to trust the process. I, I tend to see the product as an overflow of the process. And if we rush that process, then I think the product will show that. Absolutely. It's, it's half-baked. And, mm-hmm. and I think we see a lot of that, mm-hmm. um, not just with art, but with songs that are sort of, everything's kind of manufactured. Exactly, it's, right. it's a widget that we're putting through the, the, right. the ingredients and there's no magic to it. Yes, yes. And, and it, it, it grieves me and, and we don't, we can't even see it because we're not tuned to it. You know, people who live in Rome, for example, their normal life is the Trevi Fountain. Right. You know, they're walking by it on the way to work or something. So they're sort of <laughs> tuned to aesthetics and beauty and I think we need to be willing to wait, and, yes. and our culture is not willing to wait. Things are moving too fast. Madeline Engel always used the phrase that she was serving the work. Mm, I love it. And I love that approach. It's, it, she's serving the work, and she talked about that in her book, Walking on Water. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that, that when we create, we're collaborating with our materials, we're collaborating with the spirit. We're collaborating with the cultural moment that we're in. And I see that in your work and I, I really admire it. Thank you. Sarah, thank you so much for being with me on Makers and Mystics today. I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. I have too. Thank you so much for coming to the studio. This, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. If you'd like to support the podcast and join our growing community of artists from around the world, visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.